BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Chapter 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 6 A First Visit to London The Governor, seeming to like my company, had me frequently to his house, and his setting me up always mentioned as a fixed thing. I was to take with me letters, recommendary, to a number of his friends, besides the letter of credit, to furnish me with the necessary money for purchasing the press and types, paper, etc. For these letters I was appointed to call at different times when they were to be ready, but a future time was still named. Thus we went on till the ship, whose departure too had been several times postponed, was on the point of sailing. Then when I called to take my leave and receive the letters, his secretary, Dr. Bard, came out to me and said the governor was extremely busy in writing, but would be down at Newcastle before the ship, and there the letters would be delivered to me. Ralph, though married and having one child, had determined to accompany me in this voyage. It was thought he intended to establish a correspondence and obtain goods to sell on commission, but I found afterward that, through some discontent with his wife's relations, he proposed to leave her on their hands and never return again. Having taken leave of my friends, and interchanged some promises with Miss Reed, I left Philadelphia in the ship which anchored at Newcastle. The governor was there, but when I went to his lodgings the secretary came to me from him with the civilest message in the world that he could not then see me being engaged in business of the utmost importance, but should send the letters to me on board, and wished me heartily a good voyage and a speedy return, etc. I returned on board a little puzzled, but still not doubting. Mr. Andrew Hamilton, a famous lawyer of Philadelphia, had taken passage in the same ship for himself and son, and with Mr. Denham, a Quaker merchant, and Messrs. Orion and Russell, masters of an ironwork in Maryland, had engaged the great cabin, so that Ralph and I were forced to take up with a berth in the steerage, and none on board knowing us were considered as ordinary persons. But Mr. Hamilton and his son, it was James, since governor, returned from Newcastle to Philadelphia, the father being recalled by a great fee to plead for a seized ship, and, just before we sailed, Colonel French, coming on board, 
and showing me great respect, I was more taken notice of, and with my friend Ralph, invited by other gentlemen to come into the cabin, there being now room. Accordingly we removed thither. Understanding that Colonel French had brought on board the governor's dispatches, I asked the captain for those letters that were to be under my care. He said all were put in the bag together, and he could not then come at them, but before we landed in England I should have an opportunity of picking them out, so I was satisfied for the present, and we proceeded on our voyage. We had a sociable company in the cabin, and lived uncommonly well, having the addition of all Mr. Hamilton's stores, who had laid in plentifully. In this passage Mr. Denham contracted a friendship for me that continued during his life. The voyage was otherwise not a pleasant one, as we had a great deal of bad weather. When we came to the channel the captain kept his word with me, and gave me an opportunity of examining the bag for the governor's letters. I found none upon which my name was put as under my care. I picked out six or seven that by the handwriting I thought might be the promised letters, especially as one of them was directed to Basket, the king's printer, and another to some stationer. We arrived in London the 24th of December, 1724. I waited upon the stationer, who came first in my way, delivering the letter as from Governor Keith. I don't know such a person, says he, but opening the letter, oh, this is from Riddlesden. I have lately found him to be a complete rascal, and I will have nothing to do with him, nor receive any letters from him. So, putting the letter into my hands, he turned on his heel and left me to serve some customer. I was surprised to find that these were not the governor's letters, and, after recollecting and comparing circumstances, I began to doubt his sincerity. I found my friend Denham, and opened the whole affair to him. He let me into Keith's character, told me there was not in the least probability that he had written any letters for me, that no one who knew him had the smallest dependence on him, and he laughed at the notion of the governor's giving me a letter of credit, having, he said, no credit to give. On my expressing some concern about what I should do, he advised me to endeavour getting some employment in the way of my business. Among the printers here, said he, you will improve yourself, and when you return to America you will set up to greater advantage. We both of us happened to know, as well as the stationer, that Riddlesden, the attorney, was a very knave. He had half ruined Miss Reed's father by persuading him to be bound for him. By this letter it appeared there was a secret scheme on foot to the prejudice of Hamilton, supposed to be then coming over with us, and that Keith was concerned in it with Riddlesden. Denham, who was a friend of Hamilton's, thought he ought to be acquainted with it. So, when he arrived in England, which was soon after, partly from resentment and ill-will to Keith and Riddlesden, and partly from good-will to him, I waited on him and gave him the letter. He thanked me cordially, the information being of importance to him, and from that time he became my friend, greatly to my advantage afterwards on many occasions. But what shall we think of a governor's playing such pitiful tricks and imposing so grossly on a poor ignorant boy? It was a habit he had acquired. He wished to please everybody, and, having little to give, he gave expectations. 
he was otherwise an ingenious sensible man a pretty good writer and a good governor for the people though not for his constituents the proprieties whose instructions he sometimes disregarded several of our best laws were of his planning and passed during his administration ralph and i were inseparable companions we took lodgings together in little britain at three shillings and sixpence a week as much as we could then afford he found some relations but they were poor and unable to assist him he now let me know his intentions of remaining in london and that he never meant to return to philadelphia he had brought no money with him the whole he could muster having been expended paying his passage i had fifteen pistoles so he borrowed occasionally of me to subsist while he was looking out for business he first endeavoured to get into the playhouse believing himself qualified for an actor but wilkes to whom he applied advised him candidly not to think of that employment as it was impossible he should succeed in it then he proposed to roberts a publisher in paternoster row to write for him a weekly paper like the spectator on certain conditions which roberts did not approve then he endeavoured to get employment as a hackney writer to copy for the stationers and lawyers about the temple but could find no vacancy i immediately got into work at palmer's then a famous printing-house in bartholomew close and there i continued near a year i was pretty diligent but spent with ralph a good deal of my earnings in going to plays and other places of amusement we had together consumed all of my pistoles and now just rubbed on from hand to mouth he seemed quite to forget his wife and child and i by degrees my engagements with miss reed to whom i never wrote more than one letter and that was to let her know i was not likely soon to return that was another of the great errata of my life which i should wish to correct if i were to live it over again in fact by our expenses i was constantly kept unable to pay my passage at palmer's i was employed in composing for the second edition of wollaston's religion of nature some of his reasonings not appearing to me well founded i wrote a little metaphysical piece in which i made remarks on them it was entitled a dissension on liberty and necessity pleasure and pain i inscribed it to my friend ralph i printed a small number it occasioned my being more considered by mr palmer as a young man of some ingenuity though he seriously expostulated with me upon the principles of my pamphlet which to him appeared abominable my printing this pamphlet was another erratum while i lodged in little britain i made an acquaintance with one wilcox a bookseller whose shop was at the next door he had an immense collection of second-hand books circulating libraries were not then in use but we agreed that on certain reasonable terms which i have now forgotten i might take read and return any of his books this i esteemed a great advantage and i made as much use of it as i could my pamphlet by some means falling into the hands of one lyons a surgeon author of a book entitled the infallibility of human judgment it occasioned an acquaintance between us he took great notice of me called on me often to converse on those subjects carried me to the house a pale alehouse in a lane cheapside 
and introduced me to Mr. Manderville, author of the Fable of the Bees, who had clubbed there, of which he was the soul, being a most facetious man, entertaining companion. Lyons, too, introduced me to Dr. Pemberton, at Bastian's coffee-house, who promised to give me an opportunity, some time or other, of seeing Sir Isaac Newton, of which I was extremely desirous, but this never happened. I had brought over a few curiosities, among which the principal was a purse made of the asbestos, which purifies by fire. Sir Hans Sloane heard of it, came to see me, and invited me to his house in Bloomsbury Square, where he showed me all his curiosities, and persuaded me to let him add that to the number, for which he paid me handsomely. In our house there lodged a young woman, a milliner, who, I think, had a shop in the cloisters. She had been genteelly bred, was sensible and lively, and of most pleasing conversation. Ralph read plays to her in the evenings. They grew intimate. She took another lodging, and he followed her. They lived together for some time, but he being still out of business, and her income not sufficient to maintain them with her child, he took a resolution of going from London to try for a country school, which he thought himself well qualified to undertake, as he wrote an excellent hand, and was a master of arithmetic and accounts. This, however, he deemed a business below him, and confident of future better fortune, when he should be unwilling to have it known that he was once so meanly employed, he changed his name, and did me the honour to assume mine, for I soon after had a letter from him, acquainting me that he was settled in a small village, in Berkshire I think it was, where he taught reading and writing to ten or a dozen boys at sixpence per week, recommending Mrs. T. to my care, and desiring me to write to him, directing for Mr. Franklin, schoolmaster, at such a place. He continued to write frequently, sending me large specimens of an epic poem which he was then composing, and desiring my remarks and corrections. These I gave him from time to time, but endeavoured rather to discourage his proceeding. One of Young's satires was just then published. I copied and sent him a great part of it, which set in a strong light the folly of pursuing the muses with any hope of advancement by them. All this was in vain. Sheets of the poem continued to come by every post. In the meantime, Mrs. T., having on his account lost her friends in business, was often in distress, and used to send for me, and borrow what I could spare to help her out of them. I grew fond of her company, and being at that time under no religious restraint, and presuming upon my importance to her, I attempted familiarities, another erratum, which she repulsed with a proper resentment, and acquainted him with my behaviour. This made a breach between us, and when he returned again to London, he let me know he thought I had cancelled all the obligations he had been under to me, so I found I was never to expect his repaying me what I lent to him, or advanced to him. This, however, was not then of much consequence, as he was totally unable, and in the loss of his friendship I found myself relieved from a burden. I now began to think of getting a little money beforehand, and expecting better work. I left Palmer's to work at Watts, near Lincoln's Inn Fields, a still greater printing-house. Here I continued all the rest of my stay in London. At my first admission into this printing-house, 
I took to working at press, imagining I felt a want of the bodily exercise I had been used to in America, where press work is mixed with composing. I drank only water, and the other workmen, near fifty in number, were great guzzlers of beer. On occasion I carried up and down the stairs a large form of types in each hand, when others carried but one in both hands. They wondered to see, from this and several instances, what the water American, as they called me, was stronger than themselves, who drank strong beer. We had an alehouse boy who attended always in the house to supply the workmen. My companion at the press drank every day a pint before breakfast, a pint at breakfast with his bread and cheese, a pint between breakfast and dinner, a pint at dinner, a pint in the afternoon about six o'clock, and another when he had done his day's work. I thought it a detestable custom, but it was necessary, he supposed, to drink strong beer that he might be strong to labor. I endeavoured to convince him that the bodily strength afforded by beer could only be in proportion to the grain or flour in the barley, dissolved in the water of which it was made, that there was more flour in a pennyworth of bread, and therefore, if he would eat that with a pint of water, it would give him more strength than a quart of beer. He drank on, however, and had four or five shillings to pay out of his wages every Saturday night, for that muddling liquor, an expense I was free from, and thus these poor devils kept themselves always under. Watts, after some weeks, desiring to have me in the composing room, I left the pressman, a new bienvenue, or sum for drink, being five shillings, was demanded of me by the compositors. I thought it an imposition, as I had paid below, the master thought it too, and forbade my paying it. I stood about two or three weeks, was accordingly considered as an excommunicate, and had so many little pieces of private mischief done me by mixing my sorts, transposing my pages, breaking my matter, etc., etc., if I were ever so little out of the room, and all ascribed to the chapel ghost, which they said ever haunted those not regularly admitted, that notwithstanding the master's protection, I found myself obliged to comply and pay the money. Convinced of the folly of being on ill terms with those one is to live with continually. Begin footnote. Franklin now left the work of operating the printing presses, which was largely a matter of manual labor, and began setting type, which required more skill and intelligence. End footnote. I was now on a fair footing with them, and soon acquired considerable influence. I proposed some reasonable alterations in their chapel laws, and carried them against all opposition. From my example, a great part of them left their middling breakfast of beer, and bread, and cheese, finding they could with me be supplied from a neighboring house, with a large porringer of hot-water gruel sprinkled with pepper, crumbed with bread, and a bit of butter in it, for the price of a pint of beer these three halfpence. This was a more comfortable as well as cheaper breakfast, and keep their heads clearer. Those who continued sotting with beer all day were often, by not paying, out of credit at the alehouse, and used to make interest with me to get beer, their light, as they phased it, being out. I watched the pay-table on Saturday night, and collected what I stood engaged for them having to pay sometimes near thirty shillings a week 
on their accounts. Thus, and my being esteemed a pretty good rigite, that is, a jocular verbal satirist, supported my consequence in the society. My constant attendance, I never making a St. Monday, recommended me to the master, and my uncommon quickness at composing occasioned my being put upon all work of dispatch, which was generally better paid. So I went now very agreeably. Begin footnote. A printing-house is called a chapel, because Caxton, the first English printer, did his printing in a chapel connected with Westminster Abbey. St. Monday is a holy day taken to prolong the dissipation of Saturday's wages. End of footnotes. My lodging in Little Britain being too remote, I found another in Duke Street opposite the Roman chapel. It was two pair of stairs backwards at an Italian warehouse. A widow lady kept the house. She had a daughter and a maid-servant and a journeyman who attended the warehouse, but lodged abroad. After sending to inquire my character at the house where I had last lodged, she agreed to take me at the same rate, three shillings sixpence per week, cheaper, as she said, from the protection she expected in having a man lodge in the house. She was a widow, an elderly woman, and had been bred a Protestant, being a clergyman's daughter, but was converted to the Catholic religion by her husband, whose memory she much revered, had lived much among people of distinction, and knew a thousand anecdotes of them as far back as the times of Charles the Second. She was lame in her knees, with the gout, and therefore seldom stirred out of her room, so sometimes wanted company, and hers was so highly amusing to me that I was sure to spend an evening with her whenever she desired it. Our supper was only half an anchovy each, on a very little strip of bread and butter, and half a pint of ale between us, but the entertainment was in her conversation. My always keeping good hours and giving little trouble in the family made her unwilling to part with me, so that when I talked of a lodging I had heard of, nearer my business, for two shillings a week, which meant I was now on saving money, made some difference. She bid me not think of it, for she would abate me two shillings a week for the future, so I remained with her at one shilling and sixpence as long as I stayed in London. In a garret of her house there lived a maiden lady of seventy, in the most retired manner of which my landlady gave me this account, that she, being a Roman Catholic, had been sent abroad when young, and lodged in a nunnery with the intent of becoming a nun. But the country not agreeing with her, she returned to England, where, there being no nunnery, she had vowed to lead a life of a nun as near as might be done in those circumstances. Accordingly, she had given all her estate to charitable uses, reserving only twelve pounds a year to live on, and out of this sum she still gave a great deal to charity, living herself on water-gruel only, and using no fire but to boil it. She had lived many years in that garret, being permitted to remain there gratis by successive Catholic tenants of the house below, as they deemed it a blessing to have her there. A priest visited her to confess her every day. I have asked her, said my landlady, how she, as she lived, could possibly find so much employment for a confessor. Oh, she said, it is impossible to avoid vain thoughts. I was permitted once to visit her. She was cheerful and polite, and conversed pleasantly. The room was clean, but had no other furniture than a maltus, a table with a crucifix and a book a stool which she gave me to sit on, 
and a picture over the chimney of St. Veronica, displaying her handkerchief, with the miraculous figure of Christ's bleeding face on it, which she explained to me with great seriousness. She looked pale, but was never sick, and I gave it as another instance on how small an income, life and health, may be supported. At Watt's printing-house I contracted an acquaintance with an ingenious young man, one Wygate, who, having healthy relations, had been better educated than most printers, was a tolerable Latinist, spoke French, and loved reading. I taught him and a friend of his to swim at twice going into the river, and they soon became good swimmers. They introduced me to some gentlemen from the country, who went to Chelsea by water to see the college and Don Saltero's curiosities. In our return, at the request of the company whose curiosity Wygate had excited, I stripped and leapt into the river and swam from near Chelsea to Blackfriars, performing on the way many feats of activity, both upon and under water, that surprised and pleased those to whom they were novelties. Begin footnote. The story is that she met Christ on his way to crucifixion and offered him her handkerchief to wipe the blood from his face, after which the handkerchief always bore the image of Christ's bleeding face. James Salter, a former servant of Hans Sloane, lived in Cheney Walk, Chelsea. His house, a barber shop, was known as Don Salerto's Coffee House. The curiosities were in glass cases, and constituted an amazing and motley collection, a petrified crab from China, a liquefied hog, Job's tears, Madagascar lances, William the Conqueror's flaming sword, and Henry the Eighth's coat of mail. The swim was of about three miles. End of footnote. I had from a child been ever delighted in this exercise, had studied and practiced all Trevner's motions and positions, added some of my own, aiming at the graceful and easy as well as the useful. All these I took this occasion of exhibiting to the company, and was much flattered by their admiration. And Wygate, who was desirous of becoming a master, grew more and more attached to me on that account, as well as from the similarity of our studies. He at length proposed to me travelling all over Europe together, supporting ourselves everywhere by working at our business. I was once inclined to it, but mentioned it to my good friend Mr. Denham, with whom I often spent an hour when I had leisure. He dissuaded me from it, advising me to think only of returning to Pennsylvania, which he was now about to do. I must record one trait of this good man's character. He had formerly been in business at Bristol, but failed in debt to a number of people, compounded and went to America. Thereby a close application to business as a merchant, he acquired a plentiful fortune in a few years. Returning to England in the ship with me, he invited his old creditors to an entertainment at which he thanked them for the easy composition they had favoured with him, and when they expected nothing but the treat, every man at the first remove found under his plate an order on a banker for the full amount of the unpaid remainder with interest. He now told me he was about to return to Philadelphia, and should carry over a great quantity of goods in order to open a store there. He proposed to take me over as his clerk, to keep his books, in which he would instruct me, copy his letters, and attend the store. He added that as soon as I should be acquainted with 
mercantile business, he would promote me by sending me with a cargo of flour and bread, etc., to the West Indies, and procure me commission from others which would be profitable, and if I managed well, would establish me handsomely. The thing pleased me, for I was grown tired of London, remembering with pleasure the happy months I had spent in Pennsylvania, and wished again to see it. Therefore I immediately agreed on the terms of fifty pounds a year, about one hundred sixty-seven dollars, Pennsylvania money, less indeed than my present gettings as a compositor, but affording a better prospect. I took leave of printing as though forever, and was daily employed in the new business, going about it with Mr. Denham among the tradesmen to purchase various articles and seeing them packed up, doing errands, calling upon workmen to dispatch, etc., and when all was on board I had a few days' leisure. On one of these days I was, to my surprise, sent for by a great man, I knew only by name, a Sir William Wyndham, and I waited upon him. He had heard by some means or other of my swimming from Chelsea to Blackfriars, and my teaching Wygate and another young man to swim in a few hours. He had two sons about to set out on their travels. He wished to have them first taught swimming, and proposed to gratify me handsomely if I would teach them. They were not yet come to town, and my stay was uncertain, so I could not undertake it. But from this incident, I thought it likely that if I were to remain in England and open a swimming school, I might get a good deal of money, and it struck me so strongly that the overture seemed sooner made me, perhaps I should not so soon have returned to America. After many years you and I had something of more importance to do with one of these sons of Sir William Wyndham become Earl of Edgemont, which I shall mention in its place. Thus I spent about eighteen months in London, most part of the time I worked hard at my business, and spent but little upon myself, except in seeing plays and in books. My friend Ralph had kept me poor. He owed me about twenty-seven pounds, which I was now never likely to receive, a great sum out of my small earnings. I loved him, notwithstanding, for he had many admirable qualities. I had by no means improved my fortune, but I had picked up some very ingenious acquaintance, whose conversation was of great advantage to me, and I had read considerably. End of chapter 6「The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin » Chapter 7 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine Chapter 7 Beginning Business in Philadelphia We sailed from Gravesend on the 23rd of July, 1726. For the incidents of the voyage, I refer you to my journal, where you will find them all minutely related. Perhaps the most important part of that journal is the plan, to be found in it, which I formed at sea for regulating my future conduct in life. It is the more remarkable as being formed when I was so young, and yet being pretty faithfully adhered to, quite through to old age. Footnote. The journal is not found in the manuscript journal, which was left among Franklin's papers. End of footnote. 
We landed in Philadelphia on the 11th of October, where I found sundry alterations. Keith was no longer governor, being superseded by Mayor Gordon. I met him walking the streets as a common citizen. He seemed a little ashamed at seeing me, but passed without saying anything. I should have been as much ashamed at seeing Miss Reed, had not her friends, despairing with reason of my return after the receipt of my letter, persuaded her to marry another, one Rogers, a potter, which was done in my absence. With him, however, she was never happy, and soon parted from him, refusing to cohabit with him or bear his name, it being now said that he had another wife. He was a worthless fellow, though an excellent workman, which was the temptation to her friends. She got into debt, ran away in 1727 or 1728, went to the West Indies, and died there. Keimer had got a better house, a shop well supplied with stationery, plenty of new types, a number of hands, though none good, and seemed to have a great deal of business. Mr. Denham took a store in Water Street, where we opened our goods. I attended the business diligently, studied accounts, and grew in a little time expert at selling. We lodged and boarded together. He counseled me, as a father having a sincere regard for me. I respected and loved him, and we might have gone on together very happy, but in the beginning of February, 1726-1727, when I had just passed my twenty-first year, we both were taken ill. My distemper was a pleurisy, which very nearly carried me off. I suffered a good deal, gave up the point in my own mind, and was rather disappointed when I found myself recovering, regretting in some degree that I must now some time or other have all that disagreeable work to do over again. I forgot what his distemper was. It held him a long time, and at length carried him off. He left me a small legacy in a nuncupative will, as a token for his kindness for me, and he left me once more to the wide world, for the store was taken into the care of his executors, and my employment under him ended. My brother-in-law, Holmes, being now in Philadelphia, advised my return to my business, and Keimer tempted me with an offer of large wages by the year to come and take the management of his printing-house, that he might better attend his stationer's shop. I had heard a bad character of him in London from his wife and her friends, and was not fond of having any more to do with him. I tried for further employment as a merchant's clerk, but not readily meeting with any, I closed again with Keimer. I found in his house these hands, Hugh Meredith, a Welsh Pennsylvanian, thirty years of age, bred to country work, honest, sensible, had a great deal of solid observation, was something of a reader, but given to drink. Stephen Potts, a young countryman of full age, bred to the same, of uncommon natural parts, and great wit and humour, but a little idle. These he had agreed with at extreme low wages per week, to be raised a shilling every three months, as they would deserve by improving in their business, and the expectation of these high wages to come on hereafter was what he had drawn them in with. Meredith was to work at press, pots at bookbinding, which he, by agreement, was to teach them, though he knew neither one nor t'other. John, a wild Irishman, brought up to no business, whose service for four years Keimer had purchased from the captain of a ship. 
he too was to be made a pressman george webb an oxford scholar whose time for four years he had likewise bought intending him for a compositor of whom more presently and david harry a country boy whom he had taken apprentice i soon perceived that the intention of engaging me at wages so much higher than he had been used to give was to have these raw cheap hands formed through me and as soon as i had instructed them then they being all article to him he should be able to do without me i went on however very cheerfully put his printing-house in order which had been in great confusion and brought his hands by degree to mind their business and to do it better it was an odd thing to find an oxford scholar in the situation of a bought servant he was not more than eighteen years of age and gave me this account of himself that he was born in gloucester educated at grammar school there had been distinguished among the scholars for some apparent superiority in performing his part when they exhibited plays belonged to the witty club there and had written some pieces in prose and verse which were printed in the gloucester newspaper thence he was sent to oxford where he continued about a year but not well satisfied wishing of all things to see london and become a player at length receiving his quarterly allowance of fifteen guineas instead of discharging his debts he walked out of town hid his gown in a fruise bush and footed it to london where having no friend to advise him he fell into bad company soon spent his guineas found no means of being introduced among the players grew necessitous pawned his clothes and wanted bread walking the street very hungry and not knowing what to do with himself a crimp's bill was put into his hand begin footnote a crimp was the agent of a shipping company crimps were sometimes employed to decoy men into such service as is here mentioned End of footnote. offering immediate entertainment and encouragement to such as would bind themselves to serve in america he went directly signed the indenture was put into the ship and came over never writing a line to acquaint his friends what was become of him he was lively witty good-natured and a pleasant companion but idle thoughtless and imprudent to the last degree john the irishman soon ran away with the rest i began to live very agreeably for they all respected me the more as they found keimer incapable of instructing them and that from me they learned something daily we never worked on saturday that being keimer's sabbath so i had two days for reading my acquaintance with the ingenious people in the town increased keimer himself treated me with great civility and apparent regard and nothing now made me uneasy but my debt to vernon which i was yet unable to pay being hitherto but a poor economist he however kindly made no demand of it our printing-house often wanted sorts and there was no letter founder in america i had seen types cast at james in london but without much attention to the matter however i now contrived a mould made use of the letters we had as punch-ons struck the matrices in lead and thus supplied in a pretty tolerable way all the deficiencies i also engraved several things on occasion i made the ink i was warehouseman and everything and in short quite a factotum but however serviceable i might be i found that my services became every day of less importance as the other hands improved in the business and when keimer paid my second quarter's wages 
he let me know that he felt them too heavy, and thought I should make an abatement. He grew by degree less civil, put on more of the master, frequently found fault, was captious, and seemed ready for an outbreak. I went on, nevertheless, with a good deal of patience, thinking that his encumbered circumstances were partly the cause. At length a trifle snapped our connection, for the great noise happening near the courthouse, I put my head out of the window to see what was the matter. Keimer, being in the street, looked up and saw me, called out to me in a loud voice and angry tone to mind my business, adding some reproachful words that netted me the more for their publicity, all of the neighbors who were looking out on the same occasion being witness how I was treated. He came up immediately into the printing-house, continued the quarrel, high words passed on both sides. He gave me a quarter's warning we had stipulated, expressing a wish that he had not been obliged so long a warning. I told him his wish was unnecessary, for I would leave him that instant, and so taking my hat walked out of doors, desiring Meredith, whom I saw below, to take care of some things I left, and bring them to my lodgings. Meredith came accordingly in the evening, when we talked my affair over. He had conceived great regard for me, and was very unwilling that I should leave the house, while he remained in it. He dissuaded me from returning to my native country, which I began to think of. He reminded me that Keimer was in debt for all he possessed, that his creditors began to be uneasy, that he kept his shop miserably, sold often without profit, for ready money, and often trusted without keeping accounts, that he must therefore fail, which would make a vacancy I might profit of. I objected my want of money. He then let me know how his father had a high opinion of me, and from some discourse that had passed between them, he was sure he would advance money to set me up, if I would enter into partnership with him. My time, says he, will be out with Keimer in the spring. By that time we may have our press and types in from London. I am sensible I am no workman. If you like it, your skill in the business shall be set against the stock I furnish, and we will share the profits equally. The provision was agreeable, and I consented. His father was in town, and approved of it, the more as he saw I had great influence with his son, had prevailed on him to abstain long from dram-drinking, and he hoped might break him of that wretched habit entirely. When we came to be so closely connected, I gave an inventory to the father, who carried it to a merchant. The things were sent for, the secret was to be kept until they should arrive, and in the meantime I was to get work, if I could, at the other printing-house. But I found no vacancy there, and so remained idle a few days, while Keimer, on a prospect of being employed to print some paper money in New Jersey, which would require cuts in various types that I only could supply, and apprehending Bradford might engage me and get the job from him, sent me a very civil message that old friends should not part for a few words, the effect of sudden passion, and wishing me to return. Meredith persuaded me to comply, as it would give more opportunity for his improvement under my daily instruction. So I returned, and we went on more smoothly than for some time before. The New Jersey job was obtained. I contrived a copper-plate press for it, the first that had been seen in the country. I cut several ornaments and checks for the bills. We went together to Burlington, where I executed the whole to satisfaction, and he received so large a sum for the work 
as to be enabled thereby to keep his head much longer above water at burlington i made an acquaintance with many principal people of the province several of them had been appointed by the assembly's committee to attend the press and take care that no more bills were printed than the law directed they were therefore by turns constantly with us and generally he who attended brought with him a friend or two for company my mind having been much more improved by reading than keimer's i supposed it was for that reason my conversation seemed to be more valued they had me to their houses introduced me to their friends and showed me much civility while he though the master was a little neglected in truth he was an odd fish ignorant of the common life fond of rudely opposing received opinions slovenly to extreme dirtiness enthusiastic in some points of religion and a little knavish withal we continued there near three months and by the time i could reckon among my acquired friends judge allen samuel bushtill the secretary of the province isaac pearson joseph cooper and several of the smiths members of the assembly and isaac de the surveyor-general the latter was a shrewd sagacious old man who told me that he began for himself when young by wheeling clay for brickmakers learned to write after he was of age carried the chain for surveyors who taught him surveying and he now by his industry acquired a good estate and says he i foresee that you will soon work this man out of his business and make a fortune in it at philadelphia he had not then the least intimation of my intention to set up there or anywhere these friends were afterwards of great use to me as i occasionally was to some of them they all continued their regard for me as long as they lived before i enter upon my public appearance in business it may be well to let you know the then state of my mind with regard to my principles and morals that you may see how far those influenced the future events of my life my parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously in the dissenting way but i was scarce fifteen when after doubting by turns of several points as i found them disputed in the different books i read i began to doubt of revelation itself some books against deism fell into my hands they were said to be the substance of sermons preached by boyle's lectures it happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them for the arguments of the deists which were quoted to be refuted appeared to me much stronger than the refutations in short i soon became a thorough deist my arguments perverted some others particularly collins and ralph but each of them having afterwards wronged me greatly without the least compunction and recollecting keith's conduct toward me who was another freethinker and my own towards vernon and miss reed which at times gave me great trouble i began to suspect that this doctrine though it might be true was not very useful my london pamphlet which had for its motto these lines of dryden whatever is is right though a blind man sees but a part o the chain the nearest link his eyes not carried to the equal beam that poses all above and from the attributes of god his infinite wisdom goodness and power concluded that nothing could possibly be wrong in the world and that vice and virtue were empty distinctions no such things existed appeared now not so clever a performance as i once thought it and i doubted whether some error had not insinuated itself 
unperceived into my argument, so as to inflict all that follows as is common in metaphysical reasonings. I grew convinced that truth, sincerity, integrity in dealings between man and man were of the utmost importance to the felicity of life, and I formed written resolutions, which still remain in my journal-book, to practice them ever while I lived. Revelation had indeed no weight with me as such, but I entertained an opinion that, though certain actions might not be bad because they were forbidden by it, or good because it commanded them, yet probably these actions might be forbidden because they were bad for us, or commanded because they were beneficial to us, in their own natures all the circumstances of things being considered, and this persuasion with the kind hand of providence, or some other guardian angel, or accidental favourable circumstances and situations, or altogether preserved me through this dangerous time of youth, and the hazardous situations I was sometimes in among strangers, remote from the eye, and advance of my father, without my wilful gross immorality or injustice, that might have been expected from my want of religion. I say willfully, because the instances I have mentioned had something of necessity in them. From my youth, inexperience, and the naivety of others, I had therefore a tolerable character to begin the world with. I valued it properly, and determined to perceive it. We had not been long returned to Philadelphia before the new types arrived from London. We settled with Keimer, and left him by his consent before he heard of it. We found a house to hire near the market, and took it, to lessen the rent, which was then but twenty-four pounds a year, though I have since known it to let for seventy. We took in Thomas Godfrey, a glazier, and his family, who were to pay a considerable part of it to us, and we board with them. We had scarce opened our letters and put our press in order, before George House, an acquaintance of mine, brought a countryman to us whom he had met in the street inquiring for a printer. All our cash was now expended in the variety of particulars we had been obliged to procure, and this countryman's five shillings, being our first fruits, and coming so seasonably, gave me more pleasure than any crown I have ever since earned, and the gratitude I felt toward house has made me often more ready than perhaps I should otherwise have been to assist young beginners. There are croakers in every country, always boding its ruin. Such a one then lived in Philadelphia, a person of note, an elderly man, with a wise look and a very grave manner of speaking. His name was Samuel Mickle. This gentleman, a stranger to me, stopped one day at my door, and asked me if I was the young man who had lately opened a new printing-house. Being answered in the affirmative, he said he was sorry for me, because it was an expensive undertaking, and the expense would be lost for Philadelphia was a sinking place, the people already half bankrupt or near being so, all appearances to the contrary, such as new buildings and the rise of rents, being to his certain knowledge fallacious, for they were in fact among the things that would soon ruin us, and he gave me a detail of misfortunes now existing, or that were soon to exist, that he left me half melancholy, had I known him before I engaged in this business probably I should never have done it. This man continued to live in this decaying place, and to declaim in the same strain, refusing for many years to buy a house there, because all was going to destruction. And at last I had the pleasure of seeing him give 
five times as much for one as he might have bought it for when he first began his croaking. I should have mentioned before that in the autumn of the preceding year I had formed most of my ingenious acquaintance into a club of mutual improvement, which was called the Junto. We met on Friday evenings. The rules that I drew up required that every member, in his turn, should produce one or more queries on any point of morals, politics, or natural philosophy, to be discussed by the company, and once in three months produce and read an essay of his own writing, on any subject he pleased. Our debates were to be under the direction of a president, and to be conducted in the sincere spirit of inquiry after truth, without fondness for dispute or desire of victory, and to prevent warmth, all expressions of positiveness in opinions, or direct contradictions, were after some time made contraband, and prohibited under small pecuniary penalties. The first members were Joseph Brinthnall, a copier of deeds for the Scrivener, a good-natured, friendly, middle-aged man, a great lover of poetry, reading all he could meet with, and writing some that was tolerable very ingenious in many of the little nicknaves and of sensible conversation. Thomas Godfrey, a self-taught mathematician, great in his way, and afterwards inventor of what is now called Hadley's Quadrant. But he knew little out of his way, and was not a pleasing companion, as like most great mathematicians I have met with, he expected universal precision in everything said, or was forever denying or distinguishing upon trifles, to the disturbance of all conversation. He soon left us. Nicholas Skull, a surveyor, afterwards surveyor-general, who loved books and sometimes made a few verse. William Parson bred a shoemaker, but, loving reader, had acquired a considerable share of mathematics, which he first studied with a view to astrology, that he afterwards laughed at it. He also became surveyor-general. William Mogridge, a joiner, a most exquisite mechanic, and a solid, sensible man. Hugh Meredith, Stephen Potts, and George Webb I have characterized before. Robert Grace, a young gentleman of some fortune, generous, lively, and witty, a lover of punning and of his friends, and William Coleman, then a merchant's clerk about my age, who had the coolest, clearest head and best heart, and the exactest morals of almost any man I ever met with. He became afterwards a merchant of great note, and one of our provincial judges. Our friendship continued without interruption to his death, upwards of forty years, and the club continued almost as long, and was the best school of philosophy, morality, and politics that then existed in the province, for our queries, which were read the week preceding their discussions, put us upon reading with attention upon the several subjects that we might speak more to the purpose and there, too, we acquired better habits of conversation, everything being studied in our rules, which might prevent our distinguishing each other. From hence the long continuance of the club, I shall have frequent occasion to speak further of hereafter. But by giving this account of it here is to show something of the interest I had, every one of these exerting themselves in recommending business to us. Barenthal particularly procured us from the Quakers the printing forty sheets of their history, the rest being to be done by Keimer, and upon this we worked exceedingly hard, for the price was low. It was a folio, pro patria size, in pica, 
with long printer notes. I composed of it a sheet a day, and Meredith worked it off at press, and it was often eleven at night and sometimes later, before I had finished my distribution for the next day's work. For the little jobs sent in by our other friends now and then put us back, but so determined I was to continue doing a sheet a day of the folio that one night, when having imposed my forms, I thought my day's work over. One of them by accident was broken, and two pages reduced to pie. I immediately distributed and composited all over again before I went to bed, and this industry, visible to our neighbors, began to give us character and credit. Particularly, I was told, that mention being made of the new printing office at the Merchant's Every Night Club. The general opinion was that it must fail, there being already two printers in the place, Keimer and Bradford. But Dr. Baird, whom you and I saw many years after at his native place, St. Andrews in Scotland, gave a contrary opinion. For the industry of that Franklin, says he, is superior to anything I ever saw of the kind. I see him still at work when I go home from club, and he is at work again before his neighbors are out of bed. This struck the rest, and we soon had offers from one of them to supply us with stationery but as yet we did not choose to engage in shop business. I mention this industry the more particularly and the more freely, though it seems to be talking in my own praise, but those of my posterity who shall read it may know the use of that virtue when they see its effects in my favor throughout this relation. George Webb, who had found a female friend that lent him wherewith to purchase his time of Keimer, now came to offer himself as a journeyman to us. We could not then employ him, but I foolishly let him know as a secret that I soon intended to begin a newspaper, and might then have work for him. My hopes of success, as I told him, were founded on this, that the then only newspaper, printed by Bradford, was a paltry thing, wretchedly managed, no way entertaining, and yet was profitable to him. I therefore thought a good paper would scarcely fail of good encouragement. I requested Webb not to mention it, but he told it to Keimer, who immediately, to be beforehand with me, published proposals for printing one himself, on which Webb was to be employed. I resented this, and to counteract them, as I could not yet begin our paper, I wrote several pieces of entertainment for Bradford's paper, under the title of The Busybody, which Brentnall continued some months. But this means the attention of the public was fixed on that paper, and Keimer's proposals, which we burlesque and ridiculed, were disregarded. He began his paper, however, and after carrying it on three-quarters of a year, with at most only ninety subscribers, he offered it to me for a trifle and I, having been ready some time to go on with it, took it in hand directly, and it proved in a few years extremely profitable to me. I perceive that I am apt to speak in the singular number, though our partnership still continued. The reason may be that, in fact, the whole management of the business lay upon me. Meredith was no compositor, a poor pressman, and seldom sober. My friends lamented my connection with him, but I was to make the best of it. Our first papers made a quite different appearance from any before in the province, a better type and better printed, 
but some spirited remarks of my writing on the dispute then going on between governor burnett and the massachusetts assembly struck the principal people occasioned the paper and the manager of it to be talked of and in a few weeks brought them all to be our subscribers the example was followed by many and our number went on growing continually this was one of the first good effects of my having learnt a little scribble another was that the leading men seeing a newspaper now in the hands of one who could also handle a pen thought it convenient to oblige and encourage me bradford still printed the votes and laws and other public business he had printed an address of the house to the governor in a coarse blundering manner we reprinted it elegantly and correct and sent out to every member they were sensible to the difference it strengthened the hands of our friends in the house and they voted us their printers for the year ensuing among my friends in the house i must not forget mr hamilton before mentioned who was then returned from england and had a seat in it he interested himself for me strongly in that instance as he did in many others afterwards continuing his patronage until his death mr vernon about this time put me in mind of the debt i owed him but did not press me i wrote him an ingenious letter of acknowledgment craved his forbearance little longer which he allowed me and as soon as i was able i paid the principal with interest and many thanks so that erratum was in some degree corrected but now another difficulty came upon me which i had never the least reason to expect mr meredith's father who was to have paid for our printing-house according to the expectations given me was able to advance only one hundred pounds currency which had been paid and a hundred more was due to the merchant who grew impatient and sued us all we gave bail but saw that if the money could not be raised in time the suit must soon come to judgment and execution and our hopeful prospects must with us be ruined as the press and letters must be sold for payment perhaps at half price in this distress two true friends whose kindness i have never forgotten nor ever shall forget while i can remember anything came to me separately unknown to each other and without any application from me offering each of them to advance me all the money that should be necessary to enable me to take the whole business upon myself if that should be practicable but they did not like my continuing the partnership with meredith who as they said was often seen drunk in the streets and playing at low games in alehouses much to our discredit these two friends were william coleman and robert grace i told them i could not propose a separation while any prospect remained of the merediths fulfilling their part of our agreement because i thought myself under great obligation to them for what they had done and would do if they could but if they finally failed in their performance and our partnership must be dissolved i should then think myself at liberty to accept the assistance of my friends thus the matter rested for some time when i said to my partner perhaps your father is dissatisfied at the part you have undertaken in this affair of ours and is unwilling to advance for you and me what he would for you alone if that is the case tell me and i will resign the whole to you and go about my business no said he my father has really been disappointed and is really unable and i am unwilling to distress him further i see this is a business i am not fit for it i was bred a farmer and it was a folly in me to come to town and put myself at thirty years of age 
an apprentice to learn a new trade. Many of our Welsh people are going to settle in North Carolina, where land is cheap. I am inclined to go with them and follow my old employment. But you may find friends to assist you, if you will take the debts of the company upon you, return to my father the hundred pounds he has advanced, pay my little personal debts, and give me thirty pounds and a new saddle. I will relinquish the partnership and leave the whole in your hands. I agreed to this proposal. It was drawn up in writing, signed and sealed immediately. I gave him what he demanded, and he went soon after to Carolina, from which he sent me next year two long letters, containing the best account that had been given of that country, the climate, the soil, husbandry, etc., for in those matters he was very judicious. I printed them in the papers, and they gave great satisfaction to the public. As soon as he was gone, I recurred to my two friends, and because I would not give an unkind preference to either, I took half of what each had offered and I wanted of one, and half of the other, paid off the company's debts, and went on with the business in my own name, advertising that the partnership was dissolved. I think it was in or about the year 1729. End of chapter 7《The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin》Chapter 8 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Edited by Frank Woodworth Pine Chapter 8 Business Success and First Public Service About this time there was a cry among the people for more paper money only fifteen thousand pounds being extant in the province, and that soon to be sunk. The wealthy inhabitants opposed any addition, being against all paper currency, from an apprehension that it would depreciate, as it had done in New England, to the prejudice of all creditors. We had discussed this point in our junta, where I was on the side of an addition, being persuaded that the first small sum struck in 1723, had done much good by increasing the trade, employment, and number of inhabitants in the province. Since I now saw all the old houses inhabited, and many new ones building, whereas I remembered well that when I first walked about the streets of Philadelphia, eating my roll, I saw most of the houses on Walnut Street, between Second and Front Streets, with bills on their doors, to be let and many likewise in Chestnut Street, and other streets, which made me think the inhabitants of the city were deserting it one after another. Our debates possessed me so fully of the subject that I wrote and printed an anonymous pamphlet on it entitled The Nature and Necessity of a Paper Currency. It was well received by the common people in general, but the rich men disliked it, for it increased and strengthened the clamour for more money, and they, happening to have no writers among them that were able to answer it, their opposition slackened, and the point was carried by a majority in the house. My friends there, who conceived I had been of some service, thought fit to reward me by employing me in printing the money, a very profitable job, and a great help to me. This was another advantage gained by my being able to write. The utility of this currency became by time and experience so evident as never afterward to be much disputed, so that it grew soon 
to fifty-five thousand pounds, and in 1739 to eighty thousand pounds, since which it rose during war to upwards of three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Trade, building, and inhabitants all the while increased, though I now think there are limits beyond which the quantity may be hurtful. Begin footnote. Paper money is a promise to pay its face value in gold or silver. When a state or nation issues more such promises than there is likelihood of its being able to redeem, the paper representing the promises depreciates in value. Before the success of the colonies in the revolution was assured, it took hundreds of dollars of their paper money to buy a pair of boots. End footnote. I soon after obtained, through my friend Hamilton, the printing of the Newcastle paper money, another profitable job, as I then thought it, small things appearing great to those in small circumstances. And these, to me, were really great advantages, as they were great encouragements. He procured for me also the printing of the laws and votes of the government, which continued in my hand as long as I followed the business. I now opened a little stationer's shop. I had in it blanks of all sorts. The correctest that ever appeared among us, being assisted in that by my friend, Brennetnall. I had also paper, parchment, chapman's books, etc. One Whitemarsh, a compositor I had known in London, an excellent workman, now came to me and worked with me continuously and diligently, and I took an apprentice, the son of Aquila Rose. I began gradually to pay off the debt I was under for the printing-house. In order to secure my credit and character as a tradesman, I took care not only to be in reality industrious and frugal, but to avoid all appearances to the contrary. I dressed plainly. I was seen in no places of idle diversion. I never went out a-fishing or shooting. A book, indeed, sometimes debauched me from my work, but that was seldom snug and gave no scandal and to show i was not above my business i sometimes brought home the paper i purchased at the stores through the streets on a wheelbarrow thus being esteemed as an industrious thriving young man and paying duly for what i bought the merchants who imported stationery solicited my custom others proposed supplying me with books i went on swimmingly in the meantime Keimer's credit and business declining daily. He was at last forced to sell his printing-house to satisfy his creditors. He went to Barbados, and there lived some years in very poor circumstances. His apprentice, David Harry, whom I had instructed while I worked with him, set up in his place at Philadelphia, having bought his materials. I was at first apprehensive of a powerful rival in Harry, as his friends were very able, and had a good deal of interest. I therefore proposed a partnership to him, which he, fortunately for me, rejected with scorn. He was very proud, dressed like a gentleman, lived expensively, took much diversion and pleasure abroad, ran in debt, and neglected his business, upon which all business left him, and finding nothing to do, he followed Keimer to Barbados, taking the printing-house with him. There this apprentice employed his former master as a journeyman. They quarrelled often. Harry went continually behindhand, and at length was forced to sell his types and return to his country work in Pennsylvania, 
the person that bought them employed keimer to use them but in a few years he died there remained now no competitor with me in philadelphia but the old one bradford who was rich and easy did a little printing now and then by straggling hands but was not very anxious about the business however he kept the post office it was imagined he had better opportunities of obtaining news his paper was thought a better distributor of advertisements than mine and therefore had many more which was a profitable thing to him and a disadvantage to me for though i did indeed receive and send papers by the post yet the public opinion was otherwise for what i did send was by bribing the writers who took them privately bradford being unkind enough to forbid it which occasioned some resentment on my part and i thought so meanly of him for it that when i afterward came into his situation i took care never to imitate it i had hitherto continued to board with godfrey who lived in part of my house with his wife and children and had one side of the shop for his glazer's business though he worked little being always absorbed in his mathematics mrs godfrey projected a match for me with a relation's daughter took opportunities of bringing us often together till a serious courtship on my part ensued the girl being in herself very deserving the old folks encouraged me by continual invitations to supper and by leaving us together till at length it was time to explain mrs godfrey managed our little treaty i let her know that i expected as much money with their daughter as would pay off my remaining debt for the printing-house which i believe was not then above a hundred pounds she brought me word they had no such sum to spare i said they might mortgage their house in the loan office the answer to this after some days was that they did not approve the match that on inquiry of bradford they had been informed the printing business was not a profitable one that types would soon be worn out and more wanted that s keimer and d harry had failed one after the other and i should probably soon follow them and therefore i was forbidden the house and the daughter shut up whether this was a real change of sentiment or only artifice on a supposition of our being too far engaged in affection to retract and therefore that we should steal a marriage which would leave them at liberty to give or withhold what they pleased i know not but i suspect the latter resented it and went no more mrs godfrey brought me afterwards some more favourable accounts of their disposition and would have drawn me on again but i declared absolutely my resolution to have nothing more to do with that family this was resented by the godfreys we differed and they removed leaving me the whole house and i resolved to take no more inmates but this affair having turned my thoughts to marriage i looked round me and made overtures of acquaintances in other places but soon found that the business of a printer being generally thought a poor one i was not to expect money with a wife unless with such a one as i should not otherwise think agreeable a friendly correspondence as neighbours and old acquaintances had continued between me and mrs reed's family who all had a regard for me from the time of my first lodging in their house i was often invited there and consulted in their affairs wherein i sometimes was of service i pitied poor miss reed's unfortunate situation who was generally de 
dejected, seldom cheerful, and avoided company. I considered my giddiness and inconsistency when in London as a great degree the cause of her unhappiness, though the mother was good enough to think the fault more her own than mine, as she had prevented our marrying before I went thither, and persuaded the other match in my absence. Our mutual affection was revived, but there was now great objections to our union. The match was indeed looked upon as invalid, a preceding wife being said to be living in England, but this could not easily be proved because of the distance, and though there was a report of his death, it was not certain. Then, though it should be true, he had left many debts, which his successor might be called upon to pay. We ventured, however, over all these difficulties, and I took her to wife. September 1st, 1730. None of the inconveniences happened that we had apprehended. She proved a good and faithful helpmate, assisted me much by attending the shop. We throve together, and have ever mutually endeavoured to make each other happy. Thus I corrected that great erratum as well as I could. Begin footnote. Mrs. Franklin survived her marriage over forty years. Franklin's correspondence abounds with evidence that their union was a happy one. We are grown old together, and if she has any faults, I am so used to them that I don't perceive them. The following is a stanza from one of Franklin's own songs written for the Junta. Of their Chloe's and Phyllis's poets may prate. I sing my plain country Joan. These twelve years my wife, still the joy of my life, blessed day that I made her my own. End of footnote. About this time our club meeting, not at a tavern, but in a little room of Mr. Grace's, set apart for that purpose, a proposition was made by me that, since our books were often referred to in our disquotations upon the queries, it might be convenient for us to have them together where we met, that upon occasion they might be consulted, and by thus clubbing our books to a common library, we should, while we liked to keep them together, have each of us the advantage of using the books of all the other members, which would be nearly as beneficial as if we each owned the whole. It was liked and agreed to, and we filled one end of the room with such books as we could best spare. The number was not so great as we expected, and though they had been of great use, yet some inconveniences occurring for want of due care of them. The collection, after about a year, was separated, and each took his books home again. And now I set on foot my first project of a public nature, that for a subscription library. I drew up the proposals, got them put into the form by our great scrivener, Brockton, and, by the help of my friends in the Junta, procured fifty subscribers of forty shillings each to begin with, and ten shillings a year for fifty years, the term our company was to continue. We afterwards obtained a charter, the company being increased to one hundred, thus the mother of all the North American subscription libraries, now so numerous. It is become a great thing itself, and continually increasing. These libraries have improved the general conversation of the Americans, made the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent and most gentlemen from other countries, 
and perhaps have contributed in some degree to the stand so generally made through the colonies in defence of their privileges thus far was written with the intention expressed in the beginning and therefore contains several little family anecdotes of no importance to others what follows was written many years after in compliance with the advice contained in these letters and accordingly intends for the public the affairs of the revolution occasioned the interruption begin footnote here the first part of the autobiography written at twyford in seventeen seventy one ends the second part which follows was written in passy in seventeen eighty four after this memorandum franklin inserted letters from abel james and benjamin vaughan urging him to continue his autobiography End of footnote. it is some time since i received the above letters but i have been too busy till now to think of complying with the request they contain it might too be much better done if i were at home among my papers which would aid my memory and help to ascertain dates but my return being uncertain and having just now a little leisure i will endeavour to recollect and write what i can if i live to get home it may be corrected and improved not having any copy here of what is already written i know not whether an account is given of the means i used to establish the philadelphia public library which from a small beginning is now become so considerable though i remember to have come down to near the time of that transaction i will therefore begin here an account of it which may be struck out if found to have been already given at the time i established myself in philadelphia there was not a good bookseller's shop in any of the colonies to the southward of boston in new york and philadelphia the printers were indeed stationers they sold only paper etc almanacs ballads and a few common school books those who loved reading were obliged to send for their books from england and members of the junta had each a few we had left the alehouse where we first met and hired a room to hold our club in i proposed that we should all of us bring our books to that room where they would not only be ready to consult in our conferences but become a common benefit each of us being at liberty to borrow such as he wished to read at home this was accordingly done and for some time contended us finding the advantage of this little collection i proposed to render the benefit from books more common by commencing a public subscription library i drew a sketch from the plan and rules that would be necessary and got a skilful conveyancer mr charles brockton to put the whole in form of articles of agreement to be subscribed by which each subscriber engaged to pay a certain sum down for the first purchase of books and an annual contribution for increasing them so few were the readers at that time in philadelphia and the majority of us so poor that i was not able with great industry to find more than fifty persons mostly young tradesmen willing to pay down for this purpose forty shillings each and ten shillings per annum on this little fund we began the books were imported the library was opened one day in the week for lending to the subscribers on their promissory notes to pay double the value if not duly returned the institution soon manifested its utility was imitated by other towns and in other provinces the libraries were augmented by donations reading became fashionable and our people having no public amusements to 
divert their attention from study, became better acquainted with books, and in a few years were observed by strangers to be better instructed and more intelligent than people of the same rank generally are in other countries. When we were about to sign the above-mentioned articles, which were to be binding on us, our heirs, etc., for fifty years, Mr. Brockton, the scrivener, said to us, You are young men, but it is scarcely probable that any of you will live to see the expiration of the term fixed in this instrument. A number of us, however, are yet living, but the instrument was after a few years rendered null by a charter that incorporated and gave perpetuity to the company. The objections and reluctances I met with in soliciting the subscriptions made me soon feel the impropriety of presenting oneself as the proposer of any useful project that might be supposed to raise one's reputation in the smallest degree above that of one's neighbours, when one has need of their assistance to accomplish that project. I therefore put myself as much as I could out of sight, and stated it was a scheme of a number of friends, who requested me to go about and propose it to such as they thought lovers of reading. In this way my affair went on more smoothly, and I ever after practised it on such occasions, and from my frequent successes can heartily recommend it. The present little sacrifice of your vanity will afterward be amply repaid, if it remains a while uncertain to whom the merit belongs. Some one more vain than yourself will be encouraged to claim it, and then even envy will be disposed to you justice by plucking those assumed feathers and restoring them to their right owner. The library afforded me the means of improvement by constant study, for which I set apart an hour or two each day, and thus repaired in some degree the loss of the learned education my father once intended for me. Reading was the only amusement I allowed myself. I spent no time in taverns, games, or frolics of any kind, and my industry and my business continued as indefatigable as it was necessary. I was indebted for my printing-house, I had a young family coming on to be educated, and I had to contend with for business two printers, who were established in the place before me. My circumstances, however, grew daily easier. My original habits of frugality continued, and my father having, among his instructions to me when a boy, frequently repeated a proverb of Solomon, Seest thou a man diligent in his calling, he shall stand before kings, he shall not stand before mean men. I from thence considered industry as a means of obtaining wealth and distinction, which encouraged me, though I did not think that I should ever literally stand before kings which, however, has since happened, for I have stood before five, and even had the honour of sitting down with one, the King of Denmark, to dinner. We have an English proverb that says, He that would thrive must ask his wife. It was lucky for me that I had one as much disposed to industry and frugality as myself. She assisted me cheerfully in my business, folding and stitching pamphlets, tending shop, purchasing old linen rags for the paper-makers, etc., etc. We kept no idle servants. Our table was plain and simple, our furniture of the cheapest. For instance, my breakfast 
was a long time break and milk no tea and i ate it out of a twopenny earthen porringer with a pewter spoon but mark how luxury will enter families and make a progress in spite of principle being called one morning to breakfast i found it in a china bowl with a spoon of silver they had been bought for me without my knowledge by my wife and it cost her the enormous sum of three-and-twenty shillings for which she had no excuse or apology to make but that she thought her husband deserved a silver spoon and a china bowl as well as any of his neighbours this was the first appearance of plate and china in our house which afterward in a course of years as our wealth increased augmented gradually to several hundred pounds in value i had been religiously educated as a presbyterian and thought some of the dogmas of that persuasion such as the eternal decrees of god election reprobation etc appeared to me unintelligible others doubtful and i early absented myself from the public assemblies of the sect sunday being my study day i never was without some religious principles i never doubted for instance the existence of the deity that he made the world and governed it by his providence that the most acceptable service of god was the doing good to man that our souls are immortal and that all crime will be punished and virtue rewarded either here or hereafter these i esteemed the essentials of every religion and being to be found in all the religions we had in our country i respected them all though with different degrees of respect as i found them more or less mixed with other articles which without any tendency to inspire promote or confirm morality served principally to divide us and made us unfriendly to each other this respect to all with an opinion that the worst had some good effects induced me to avoid all discourse that might tend to lessen the good opinion another might have of his own religion and as our province increased in people and new places of worship were continually wanted and generally erected by voluntary contribution my might for such purpose whatever might be the sect was never refused though i seldom attended any public worship i had still an opinion of its propriety and its utility when rightly conducted and i regularly paid my annual subscription for the support of the only presbyterian minister or meeting we had in philadelphia he used to visit me sometimes as a friend and admonished me to attend his administrations and i was now and then prevailed on to do so once for five sundays successively had he been in my opinion a good preacher perhaps i might have continued notwithstanding the occasion i had for the sunday's leisure in my course of study but his discourses were chiefly either polemic arguments or explanations of the particular doctrines of our sect and were all to me very dry uninteresting and unedifying since not a single moral principle was inculcated or enforced their aim seeming to be rather to make us presbyterians than good citizens at length he took for his text that verse of the fourth chapter of philippians finally brethren whatsoever things are true honest just pure lovely or of good report 
if there be any virtue or any praise, think on these things. And I imagined in a sermon on such a text, he would not miss of having some morality. But he confined himself to the five points only, as meant by the apostle, viz. 1. Keeping holy the Sabbath day. 2. Being diligent in reading the holy scriptures. 3. Attending duly the public worship. 4. Partaking of the sacrament. 5 paying a due respect to God's ministers. These might be all good things, but as they were not the kind of good things that I expected from that text, I despaired of ever meeting with them from any other, was disgusted, and attended his preaching no more. I had some years before composed a little liturgy, or form of prayer, for my own private use, viz. in 1728, entitled Articles of Belief and Act of Religion. I returned to the use of this and went no more to the public assemblies. My conduct might be blamable, but I leave it, without attempting further to excuse it, my present purpose being to relate facts and not to make apologies for them. End of chapter 8 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 9 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, edited by Frank Woodward Pine. Chapter 9. Plan for Attaining Moral Perfection. It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found that I had undertaken a task more difficult than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping, and that the contrary habits must be broken and good ones acquired and established before we can have any dependence on a steady, uniform, vicissitude of conduct. For this purpose I therefore contrived the following method. In the various enumerations of the moral virtues I had met with in my reading, I found the catalogue more or less numerous, as different writers included more or fewer ideas under the same name. Temperance, for example, was by some confined to eating and drinking, while by others it was extended to mean the moderating every other pleasure, appetite, inclination, or passion, bodily or mental, even to our avarious and ambition. I proposed to myself, for the sake of clearness, to use rather more names, and fewer ideas annexed to each, than a few names with more ideas, and I included, under thirteen names of virtues, all that at that time occurred to me as necessary or desirable and I annexed to each a short precept, 
which fully expressed the extent I gave to its meaning. These names of virtues, with their precepts, were 1. Temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. 2. Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. 3. Order. Let all your things have their place. Let each part of your business have its time. 4. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. 5. Frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, i.e., waste nothing. 6. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. 7. Sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly, and, if you speak, speak accordingly. 8. Justice. Wrong done by doing injuries, or omitting the benefits that are your duty. 9. Moderation. Avoid extremes. Forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. 10. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. 11. Tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles, or at accidents common or unavoidable. 12. Chastity. 13. Humility. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. My intention being to acquire the habitude of all these virtues, I judged it would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, but to fix it on one of them at a time and when I should be master of that, then to proceed to another, and so on, till I should have gone through the thirteen, and, as the previous acquisition of some might facilitate the acquisition of certain others, I arranged them with that in view, as they stand above. Temperance first, as it tends to produce that coolness and clearness of head which is so necessary when constant vigilance has to be kept up and guard maintained against the unremitting attraction of ancient habits and the force of perpetual temptations this being acquired and established silence would be more easy and my desire being to gain knowledge at the same time that i improved in virtue and considering that in conversation it was obtained rather by the use of the ears than of the tongue and therefore wishing to break the habit I was getting into of prattling, punning, and joking, which only made me acceptable to trifling company. I gave silence the second place. This and the next order I expected would allow me more time for attending to my project and my studies. Resolution, once become habitual, would keep me firm in my endeavors to obtain all the subsequent virtues frugality and industry freeing me from my remaining debt and producing affluence and independence would make more easily the practice of sincerity and justice etc etc conceiving then that agreeably to the advice of pythagoras in his golden verses daily examination would be necessary i contrived the following method for conducting that examination i made a little book in which I allotted a page for each of the virtues. I ruled each page with red ink, 
so as to have seven columns, one for each day of the week, marking each column with a letter for the day. I crossed these columns with thirteen red lines, marking the beginning of each line with the first letter of one of the virtues, on which line, and in its proper column, I might mark, by a little black spot, every fault I found upon examination to have been committed respecting that virtue upon that day. Footnote. Pythagoras was a famous Greek philosopher who lived about 582 to 500 B.C. The golden verses here ascribed to him are probably of later origin. The time which he recommends for this work is about even or bedtime, that we may conclude the action of the day with the judgment of conscience, making the examination of our convention an evening song to God. End of footnote. I determined to give a week's strict attention to each of the virtues successively. Thus, in the first week, my great guard was to avoid every the least offence against temperance, leaving the other virtues to their ordinary chance, only marking every evening the faults of the day. Thus, if in the first week I could keep my first line marked T clear of spots, I supposed the habit of that virtue so much strengthened and its opposite weakened that I might venture extending my attention to include the next, and for the following week keep both lines clear of spots. Proceeding thus to the last, I would go through a course complete in thirteen weeks, and four courses in a year. And like him who, having a garden to weed, does not attempt to eradicate all the bad herbs at once, which would exceed his reach and his strength, but works on one of the beds at a time, and having accomplished the first, proceeds to a second, so I should have, I hoped, the encouraging pleasure of seeing on my pages the progress I made in virtue by clearing successively my lines of their spots, till, at the end, by a number of courses, I should be happy in viewing a clean book after a thirteen weeks' daily examination. This my little book had for its motto these lines from Addison's Cato. Here will I hold, if there is a power above us, and that there is, all nature cries aloud, through all her works, he must delight in virtue, and that which he delights in must be happy. Another from Cicero. O philosophy, guide of life, O searcher out of virtue and exterminator of vice, one day spent well and in accordance with thy precepts is worth an immortality of sin. Tusculian Inquiries, Book 5 Another of the Proverbs of Solomon, speaking of wisdom or virtue, Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. And conceiving God to be the fountain of wisdom, I thought it right and necessary to solicit his assistance for obtaining it to this end. I formed the following little prayer, which was prefixed to my tables of examination for daily use. O powerful goodness, bountiful Father, merciful guide, increase in me that wisdom which discovers my truest interest, strengthen my resolution to perform what that wisdom dictates. Accept my kind offices to thy other children, 
as the only return in my power for thy continual favours to me. I used also sometimes a little prayer which I took from Thompson's poems. Peace, Father of light and life, thou good supreme, O teach me what is good, teach me thyself. Save me from folly, vanity, and vice, from every low pursuit, and fill my soul with knowledge, conscious peace, and virtue pure, sacred, substantial, never-fading bliss. The precept of order, requiring that every part of my business should have its allotted time, one page of my little book contained the following scheme, employed for the twenty-four hours of a natural day. 5. Rise, wash, and address. 6. Powerful goodness. Contrive day's business, and take the resolution of the day. 7. Prosecute the present study and breakfast. The morning question, what good shall I do this day? 9. Work. 12. Noon. Read or overlook my accounts, and at dine. 3. Work. Evening. 6. Put things in their places, supper, music, or diversion, or conversation. Evening question. What good have I done to-day? 9. Examination of the day. Night. 10. Sleep. I entered upon the execution of this plan for self-examination, and continued it with occasional intermissions for some time. I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined, but I had the satisfaction of seeing them diminish. To avoid the trouble of renewing now and then my little book, which, by scraping out the marks on the paper of old faults to make room for new ones in a new course, became full of holes, I transferred my tables and precepts to the ivory leaves of a memorandum book, on which the lines were drawn with red ink. That made a durable stain, and on those lines I marked my faults with a black lead pencil, which marks I could easily wipe out with a wet sponge. After a while I went through one course only in a year, and afterward only one in several years, till at length I omitted them entirely, being employed in voyages and business abroad, with a multiplicity of affairs that interfered, but I always carried my little book with me. My scheme of order gave me the most trouble, and I found that, though it might be practicable where a man's business was such as to leave him the disposition of his time, that of a journeyman printer, for instance, it was not possible to be exactly observed by a master, who must mix with the world and often receive people of business at their own hour. Order, too, with regard to places for things, papers, etc., I found extremely difficult to acquire. I had not been early accustomed to it, and, having an exceeding good memory, I was not so sensible of the inconvenience attending want of method. This article, therefore, cost me so much painful attention, and my faults in it vexed me so much, and I made so little progress in amendment, and had such frequent relapses, that I was almost ready to give up the attempt, and content myself with a faulty character in that respect, like the man who, in buying an axe for a smith, my neighbor desired to have the whole of its surface as bright as the edge. The smith consented to grind it bright for him, if he would turn the wheel. He turned while the smith pressed the broad face of the axe hard and heavily on the stone, 
which made the turning of it very fatiguing. The man came every now and then from the wheel to see how the work went on, and at length would take his axe as it was without further grinding. No, said the smith, turn on, turn on, we shall have it bright by and by, as yet it is only speckled. Yes, says the man, but I think I like a speckled axe best. And I believe this may have been the case with many who, having, for want of some such means as I employed, found the difficulty of obtaining good and breaking bad habits in other points of vice and virtue, have given up the struggle and concluded that a speckled axe was best. For something that pretended to be reason was every now and then suggested to me that such extreme nicety as I exacted of myself might be a kind of foppery in morals, which, if it were known, it would make me ridiculous, that a perfect character might be attended with the inconvenience of being envied and hated, and that a benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends in continence. Footnote. Professor McMaster tells us that when Franklin was American agent in France, his lack of business order was a source of annoyance to his colleagues and friends. Strangers who came to see him were amazed to behold papers of the greatest importance scattered in the most careless way over the table and floor. End footnote. In truth I found myself incorrigible with respect to order, and now I am grown old and my memory bad, I feel very sensibly the want of it. But on the whole, though, I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it. Yet I was, by the endeavour, a better and a happier man than I otherwise should have been if I had not attempted it, as those who aim at perfect writing by imitating the engraved copies, though they never reach the wished-for excellence of those copies, their hand is mended by the endeavour, and is tolerable while it continues fair and legible. It may be well my posterity should be informed that to this little artifice, with the blessing of God, their ancestor owed the constant felicity of his life down to his seventy-ninth year, in which this is written, What reverses may attend the remainder is in the hand of providence, but if they arrive, the reflection on past happiness enjoyed ought to help his bearing them with more resignation. To temperance he ascribes his long-continued health and what is still left to him of a good constitution, to industry and frugality, the early easiness of his circumstances and acquisition of his fortune, with all that knowledge that enabled him to be a useful citizen, and obtain for him some degree of reputation among the learned, sincerity and justice, the confidence of his country, and the honourable employs it conferred upon him, and to the joint influence of the whole mass of the virtues, even in the imperfect state he was able to acquire them, all that evenness of temper and that cheerfulness in conversation which makes his company still sought for, and agreeable even to his younger acquaintance. I hope, therefore, that some of my descendants may follow the example and reap the benefit. Footnote. While there can be no question that Franklin's moral improvement and happiness were due to the practice of these virtues, yet most people will agree 
that we shall have to go back of his plan for the impelling motive to a virtuous life franklin's own suggestion that the scheme smacks of foppery in morals seems justified woodrow wilson well puts it men do not take fire from such thoughts unless something deeper which is missing here shines through them what may have seemed to the eighteenth century a system of morals seems to us nothing more vital than a collection of the precepts of good sense and sound conduct what redeems it from pettiness in this book is the scope of power and of usefulness to be seen in franklin himself who set these standards up in all seriousness and candour for his own life see galatians chapter five for the christian plan of moral perfection End footnote. it will be remarked that though my scheme was not wholly without religion there was in it no mark of any of the distinguishing tenets of any particular sect i had purposely avoided them for being fully persuaded of the utility and excellency of my method and that it might be serviceable to people in all religions and intending some time or other to publish it i would not have anything in it that should prejudice any one of any sect against it i proposed writing a little comment on its virtue in which i would have shown the advantages of possessing it and the mischiefs attending to its opposite vice and i should have called my little book the art of virtue because it would have shown the means and manner of obtaining virtue which would have distinguished it from the mere exhortation to be good that does not instruct and indicate the means but is like the apostle's man of verbal charity who only without showing to the naked and hungry how or where they might clothe or victual extorted them to be fed and clothed james chapter two verses fifteen and sixteen footnote nothing so likely to make a man's fortune as virtue End footnote. but it so happened that my intention of writing and publishing this comment was never fulfilled i did indeed from time to time put down short hints of the sentiments reasonings etc to be made use of in it some of which i have still by me but the necessary close attention to private business in the earlier part of my life and public business sense have occasioned my postponing it for it being connected to my mind with a great and extensive project that required the whole man to execute and which an unforeseen succession of employees prevented my attending to it has hitherto remained unfinished in this piece it was my design to explain and enforce this doctrine that vicious actions are not hurtful because they are forbidden but forbidden because they are hurtful the nature of man alone considered that it was therefore every one's interest to be virtuous who wished to be happy even in this world and i should from this circumstance there being always in the world a number of rich merchants nobility states and princes who have need of honest instruments for the management of their affairs and such being so rare have endeavoured to convince young persons that no qualities were so likely to make a poor man's fortune as those of probity and integrity my list of virtues contained at first but twelve but a quaker friend having kindly informed me that i was generally thought proud 
that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation, that I was not content in being in the right when discussing any point, but was overbearing and rather insolent, of which he convinced me by mentioning several instances, I determined, endeavouring to cure myself, if I could, of this vice or folly among the rest, and I added humility to my list, giving an extensive meaning to the word. I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradictions to the sentiments of others, and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbid myself agreeably to the old laws of Arjunto, the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as, certainly, undoubtedly, etc., and I adopted instead of them, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine, a thing to be so-and-so, or it so appears to me at present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly, and of showing immediately some absurdity in his proposition, and in answering I began by observing that in certain cases or circumstances his opinion would be right, but in the present case there appeared, or seemed, to me, some differences, etc. I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went more pleasantly. The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradictions. I had less mortifications when I was found to be in the wrong, and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be in the right. And this mode, which I am first put on with some violence to natural inclination, became at length so easy and so habitual to me that perhaps for these fifty years past no one has ever heard a dogmatical expression escape me. And to this habit, after my character of integrity, I think it principally owing that I had early so much weight with my fellow-citizens when I proposed new institutions or alterations in the old, and so much influence in public councils when I became a member, for I was but a bad speaker, never eloquent, subject to much hesitation in my choice of words, hardly correct in language, and yet I generally carried my points. In reality there is, perhaps, no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive, and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it, perhaps, often in this history, for even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Thus far written at Passé, 1784. Footnote. I am now about to write at home, August, 1788, but cannot have the help expected from my papers, many of them being lost in the war. I have, however, found the following. This is a marginal memorandum. End of footnote. Having mentioned a great and extensive project which I had conceived, it seemed proper that some account should be here given of that project and its object. Its first rise in my mind appeared in the following little paper, accidentally preserved, viz. Observations on my reading history, in library, 
May 19, 1731, that the great affairs of the world, the wars, revolutions, etc., are carried on and effected by parties, that the view of these parties is their present general interest, or what they take to be such, that the different views of these different parties occasion all confusion, that while a party is carried on a general design, each man has his particular private interests in view, that as soon as a party has gained its general point, each member becomes intent upon his particular interest, which, thwarting others, breaks that party into divisions, and occasions more confusion. That few in public affairs act from a mere view of good of their country, whatever they may pretend, and though their actions bring real good to their country, yet men primarily considered that their own and their country's interest was united, and did not act from a principle of benevolence. That few still, in public affairs, act with a view to the good of mankind. There seems to me at present to be great occasion for raising a united party for virtue, by forming the virtuous and good men of all nations into a regular body to be governed by suitable good and wise rules, which good and wise men may probably be more unanimous in their obedience to than common people are to common laws. I at present think that whoever attempts this aright, and is well qualified, cannot fail of pleasing God, and of meeting with success. B. F. Revolving this project in my mind, as to be undertaken hereafter when my circumstances should afford me the necessary leisure, I put down from time to time on pieces of paper such thoughts as occurred to me respecting it. Most of these are lost, but I found one purporting to be the substance of an intended creed, containing, as I thought, the essentials of every known religion, and being free of everything that might shock the professors of any religion. I expressed in these words, viz., that there is one God who made all things, that he governs the world by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped by adoration, prayer, and thanksgiving, but that the most acceptable service of God is doing good to man, that the soul is immortal, and that God will certainly reward virtue and punish vice, either here or hereafter. My ideas at that time were, that the sect should be begun and spread at first among young and single men only, that each person to be initiated should not only declare his assent to such creed, but should have exercised himself with the thirteen weeks' examination and practice of the virtues, as in the before-mentioned model, that the existence of such a society should be kept a secret till it was become considerable, to prevent solicitations for the admission of improper persons, but that the members should each of them search among his acquaintances for ingenious, well-disposed youths, to whom, with prudent caution, the scheme should be gradually communicated, that the members should engage to afford their advice, assistance, and support to each other, in promoting one another's interests, businesses, and advancement in life, that for distinction we should be called the Society of the Free and Easy, free as being by the general practice and habit of the virtues, free from the dominion of vice, and particularly by the practice of industry and frugality, free from debt, which exposes a man to confinement, and a species of slavery to his creditors. 
This is as much as I can now recollect of the project, except that I communicated it in parts to two young men who adopted it with some enthusiasm, but my then narrow circumstances and the necessity I was under of sticking close to my business occasioned my postponing the further prosecution of it at that time, and my multifarious occupations, public and private, induced me to continue postponing, so that it has been omitted till I have no longer strength or activity left sufficient for such an enterprise, though I am still of opinion that it was a practicable scheme and might have been very useful by forming a great number of good citizens, and I was not discouraged by the seeming magnitude of the undertaking, as I have always thought that one man of tolerable abilities may work great changes and accomplish great affairs among mankind if he first forms a good plan and, cutting off all amusements or other employments that would divert his attention, makes the execution of that same plan his sole study and business. End of chapter 9